Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's episode is going to focus on cybersecurity's impact on the global economy and on international trade. Joining me today is Katie Rossa tenured professor at the University of California, Davis, and the co-organizer of the International Trade and Macroeconomics Working Group with the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is also on the Academic Advisory Board and a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and is also a contributing member at the Institute for Globalization and Monetary Policy at the, Federal, at the Reserve Bank of Dallas. She's received dozens of awards, written hundreds of policy papers, reviews, chapters, journal articles, presented all over the world, and has been the session chair and organizer and panelist at scores of industry conferences. She earned her master's and PhD in economics at the Johns Hopkins University, a uh, master's degree in agricultural and applied economics, and a bachelor's in economics from the College of William and Mary. I think it's fair to say that Katie knows a little bit about economics, trade, and international policy. So welcome, Katie. I'm glad you could join me today. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. So in my opinion, there's a strong correlation between what happens in cybersecurity and the resulting impacts on the global economy and on international trade. The three major countries who operate most heavily in this arena, Russia, China, and us, uh, all have differing agendas and value systems. What's your assessment of the current state of affairs from purely from an economist's point of view? I think this is a really pivotal time for the global economy in that after World War II, the U.S. really did a lot to create some rules of the road for global trade and finance. And that, according to some people, for instance, Lee Kuan Yew, the former leader of Singapore, who helped design and oversee a lot of their miraculous success. So he argued that these rules of the road and this, this kind of peace, however you want to view it, from U.S. influence and U.S. military hegemony, that that created space for developing countries to really devote themselves to pulling themselves out of poverty. And as developing countries grew, a lot of them were dependent on what we call now industrial policy. So really pumping resources into capital-intensive industries, keeping wages low, for some trying to leverage the competitive forces of competing in global markets. And that worked for a long time. And we actually did see some miracles. So we saw many, many people pulled out of poverty under these economic growth models. But then we came to a point in, say, the late 70s or early 80s, especially in the 90s, where some of these countries who had pulled themselves out of poverty or were in the midst of it, they got big. So if we think of the size of China's economy, for instance, right now, it's the size of the U.S. economy in real terms, purchasing power parity adjusted. and so. If countries are still pursuing those industrial policies that they use to expand targeted sectors or support them, then that can actually cause distortions in global markets. So again, if we take the example of China, 
I mean, they produce half the world's steel. And so if they provide supports to their steel sector, that's going to have an influence on how many steel jobs can be supported by demand in other countries. Right. But then they still have these supports, this industrial policy. And we have this issue of, okay, how are we going to deal with that? You know, and that's coming out in the form of really rapidly escalating trade frictions. I think we saw that over the last four years. And so some people's answer to that has been to decouple from some of the larger developing economies, in particular China. And then on the other hand, you mentioned Russia. We've got Russia and Russia has seen you know, a real shift since the 90s in its kind of footprint on geopolitics. And so it's trying to figure out a way, okay, how am I going to have, how are we going to have a a place at the table? Like, how are we going to kind of recover our position as a global superpower? And so you see a lot of disruptive behavior coming from Russia with the cyber attacks, for instance, that we see recently. Not that those are necessarily state supported, but to the degree that they're happening on Russian soil or with groups affiliated with Russia, then that, you know, that's certainly having an impact and getting some attention in the lead up to big events like this, the G7 summit that we just saw. Yeah. You know, the everybody's headed toward digitalization here and growth and production and use of data uh, across broad areas of industry and services is the core of the digital economy. Emerging technologies like AI are transforming international trade highlighting the economic, social, and political political stakes, as well as the potential cybersecurity risks. Looking ahead, the deployment of 5G networks and technologies will lead to a step change in the growth of the digital economy and digital trade. What do you see as the future impact of those technologies on trade? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. So these technologies are going to broaden the range of services that can be provided remotely and cheaply, even overseas. So I mean, People are talking about surgeries provided remotely overseas, across national borders, across oceans. There's a wonderful book by Richard Baldwin, who's part of a dynasty in the field of economics, and in particular, international economics. But he has this book called The Globotics Upheaval, and it speaks in detail about exactly this issue. And he says that it won't be long before a lot of white-collar workers whose jobs have been relatively insulated from import competition as compared to the jobs that were displaced during, say, the the China shock in the 1990s and early 2000s, that those jobs will also be facing a lot more global competition in the coming years. Yeah. And of course, in the meantime, we're all threatening and duking out with each other to create all this chaos in the middle. It'll be interesting to see how all this evolves. Definitely. In the the realm of economics, globalization tends to refer to the growing interdependence among countries. You got flow of goods, services, capital, technology, know-how. At first glance, the case for globalization seems to be just a more general version of the case for freer trade. China's been rolling out its global dependency program, which (laughs) they call the you know, Belt and Road Initiative to small countries around the world to get folks to participate in these things. They have offers of cash and advanced technologies, which they exchange for natural resources and and also a place at the you know, Chinese Communist Party's community. What's your opinion on whether this program will affect international trade and or how the West is going to deal with a much enlarged Chinese economy? 
first, I'd like to, to just emphasize an insight in what you just said that's very important. So you said that China's been emphasizing natural resources. And it's true. China has priorities for its foreign direct investment activities. And those are resource extraction, acquisition of technology, and market access. So you can see all of these at work in one way or another in the Belt and Road initiatives across a, a broad array of regions, whether we're talking about Southeast Asia or in the coast of Africa. Do you see some of these, these things at work? And for market access, I mean, the Belt and Road initiative, it ends in Frankfurt. So we think of it as going through the Silk Road, but it ends in Europe and not just Europe generally, but but Frankfurt. And so you already see a solidification of these ties, of the sort of deepening of these this interdependencies, mutual commitments in the G7 discussions last week, when you saw some, some hesitance among some of the European powers to really kind of throw in their their fate with the United States and taking up a more confrontational tone with China. There was some hesitancy about doing that. Right. I think in terms of, you know, what this is going to do to international trade, I mean, certainly it's solidifying those, some of these ties between China and Europe. It will increase China's economic footprint across Asia. And I think we have to think about what that means. What does it mean when China has a bigger economic footprint. And so far, it looks like China's rules of the road have been non-market activity, national champions, and we're not sure how their rules of the road are going to relate to standards. So I'm sure you've heard in the news periodically about different issues China might have related to privacy, related to forced acquisition of technology as a prerequisite for operating inside China or having access to the Chinese market, and then also issues occasionally with food safety or things like that. So we don't know how China's really going to land on all of these things yet. And so it'll be interesting to see where they do land and then how that affects standards throughout this region where they're undertaking this Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, as a very diplomatic answer. I, I spent six years in and out of mainland China. I have a very, very strong firsthand idea about how what China's intentions are. And I don't think that the cyber attacks in the last, what, six months now, I guess, are by accident, either from China or from Russia. I think those are clear demonstrations of, uh, of technological superiority, which are essentially threats, right? It's kind of like, in addition to all this other stuff, Oh, by the way, we're way ahead of you guys in in cybersecurity. So if you know what's good for you, you need to treat these two countries differently. However, well, so from my point of view, cybersecurity is a global threat, right, to the Mm -hmm. current balance of power. What's your view of its potential short and long-term impacts? I know you're not a cybersecurity expert by any means, but but you certainly, as an uh, with an observational point of view on international trade and global economy have some view about what's going on in, in terms of that threat? So I spent 18 months 
in service during the Obama administration. So I was senior economist for international trade and finance for the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 2015 and 2016. And so having seen some of these, these processes in international economic relations and just as a broad observer of the national security community, what's really catching my attention right now is the mass exodus that we've seen of cybersecurity officials from the U.S. government over the last few years. And so not only is cybersecurity of enormous importance to national security, as you're saying, but in terms of who's you know, superior or not in cybersecurity, I mean, we are really on the back foot right now with the departure of these officials. And they've departed from different agencies. So we've got from Department of um, Homeland Security, from the State Department, from inside the White House itself. So I mean, we're really on the back foot right now. And that is something that must be addressed immediately. I'm sure it probably is being addressed right now, but it could take years to rebuild that expertise in cybersecurity that would be necessary to really run a whole of government operation to take this seriously. I hope that happens. Would you agree that we need a whole of government program here to sort of take control of this issue at some central level? Absolutely. I mean, if we can't even keep our internal U.S. government deliberations confidential, certainly it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You spot on. So there are four areas of cyber risk that I think are have implications for global data flows in this digital economy. National defense is one, and that includes the defense infrastructure, the networks, software, and all of the classified stuff. Critical infrastructure is the second, trade secrets and intellectual property are the third. And many would argue that this whole world of mis and mal and disinformation is the fourth with a very acute risk to our social fabric. From your perspective, what do we need to do better in our protection against digital disruption? By paying attention to restaffing our cybersecurity expertise across the U.S. government, that would enable a whole-of-government approach to cybersecurity and national defense. But it would also enable the U.S. government to be in a better position to perhaps conduct public-private partnerships where the government might be able to help support firms in the private sector, troubleshoot, kind of like we do stress testing for banks. We could do that for cybersecurity as well, more systematically. There was a great article in the CNN recently on Estonia and how Estonia has this not just whole-of-government approach, but whole-of-society approach. So they invite school kids to try to hack systems just at once to help troubleshoot those systems, but also to engender people of all ages to maintain these principles of cybersecurity in mind. Because cybersecurity isn't just about the systems, it's about the people who use the systems. And we don't really have that culture right now in the U.S. of maintaining a really strong sense of cyber awareness. Yeah, that's right. I did see that piece on Estonia. Good on them. You know, what you said is very true. We're, we're, we're terrible, absolutely terrible at that. But we're sure good at 
tying ourselves up in uh, in technology advancement at a level of complexity that none of us seem to be able to deal with here. So we are the glassiest of glass houses here, and and yet the the absolute worst ability to defend against uh, incoming. So it's a real dilemma. And your point to your point, I mean, if we don't do something really fast, really soon, which the government's not good at doing, you know, either one with the exception of maybe the Manhattan Project or the moonshot, it's going to get even more exciting here. Mm. I think, you know, the estimates are like 85 to 90% of critical infrastructure in the U.S. is privately owned. And so the targeting of private businesses is another major cybersecurity risk. Mm -hmm. We don't have any incentives for business to invest in the level of protection that would safeguard the public interest. Business is always about business. They don't care about you know, issues around uh, society or public defense. The cybersecurity vulnerabilities in all of these networks can become everybody's vulnerability. And it kind of creates this prisoner's dilemma that justifies business underinvestment in cybersecurity. As an economist, do you think there'll ever come a time when boards will move to make significant investments in cybersecurity defense? And and if you do, when when do you expect that might happen? I think of this a little bit like climate change. Like you see cybersecurity risks increasing. For instance, we've had more than 20 attacks just by either Russian-speaking or Russian-affiliated groups in the last year, but more than half of them have been in the, the last six months. So even in the short term, it seems to be intensifying. So I think this is kind of like a continued heating up that we'll see in cybersecurity risk, but with periodic extreme events that occur with increasing frequency. And you see that there's more of a call now for companies to come up with uh, approaches to climate change and addressing climate change in their business models. And I, I think that there will probably be similar calls too for cybersecurity. Again, we don't have the same organization of staffing and expertise in the U.S. government right now. I mean, we have a lot of expertise, but just the leadership is a bit fragmented across the U.S. government. But I'm sure that once that is rebuilt, that we will probably see greater calls and more systematic and supported calls for the private sector to start taking notice. I think you'll really see action if, say, you get calls from like leadership in the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors calling on businesses to start thinking more about cybersecurity and cyber risk. What I wonder is when we'll see state and local governments taking cybersecurity seriously as well. And that seems very important also for protecting critical infrastructure. Yeah, no kidding. I got one more question in, 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 into your crystal ball with uh, not having nothing to do with cybersecurity. When is the <laughs> Fed, when's the Fed going to... Uh, get a handle on inflation and what what is your prediction for uh, what they're going to do about it? Oh my goodness. You're really asking me to read the tea leaves here. I am. am. (laughs) So far, if we look at the rate of inflation on a two-year basis, as opposed to a one-year basis, we don't see a lot of heating up of inflation. So what do I mean by that? Well, during the pandemic, we saw prices drop 
overall. So there's a big decline in prices. So suddenly, if prices are normalizing or even overshooting a little bit, it overemphasizes the true degree and the increase in the price level. If we're comparing the price level to when it had just dropped a lot, then of course, it's going to look like there's a lot of inflation. Whereas if you look back to where prices were two years ago, you don't see that bell ringing level of inflation. So certain government officials have predicted that inflation may you know, get to three, even toward 4% um, before our current boom reaches its peak and starts to subside. I mean, that it doesn't seem strange that we would see inflation of perhaps 3% during this boom with all of the rescue funds we have injected into the economy to, to heal up the job market and try to bring relief to the millions of families who have been displaced or are facing uh, the danger of losing their homes and so forth, uh, have been facing more food insecurity, all of these things. So, you know, it may not be strange to run the economy a little bit hotter for a little while while we get everyone back up to a better standard of living after this huge shock that we've had. But I don't expect the hyperinflation that alarmists have been have been talking about so far. I mean, they also talked about this. You had people writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere about the danger of hyperinflation when we had the American the ARRA, so the rescue from the Great Recession, and that never materialized, quite the contrary. We seem to be in this era of very low inflation rates. It's been all central banks can do to even get anywhere near 2%, which is their normal target. So I think the danger of hyperinflation is really greatly overstated at this point. Yeah, so your your argument would be that the metrics are denormalized uh, right now, and that Jerome's doing what you would do if you were in his position. I take it then. Jay Powell is doing a fantastic job. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he's doing a fantastic job. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel so much better about that, and I, I promise <laughs> I won't ask you uh, to tell us what's going to happen in, in the housing market. Yeah, I'd rather not go there. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Well, listen, Katie, this was great. Thank you for that, all of that insight. It's really terrific to get a non-practitioner's sort of sober, uh, objective insight into, into the effect of, of cyber risk on, on the global economy. So thank you for that. And I'm going to pull you back here in about four or five months so that we can see how what kind of a toll the summer took. And if you don't mind, then uh, we'll do it again. Oh, thanks to you, Steve. Yeah, it's been great. And I'll look forward to it. Terrific. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another episode of Cyber Theory's exploration into the complex world of the complex world. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.